Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Sahar Vardi. She is the Israel Program Manager for the American Friends Service Committee in Jerusalem and a longtime anti-occupation and anti-militaristic activist. She has been involved in solidarity activism in East Jerusalem against home demolitions and evictions for over a decade, and she is a member of the Israeli refusal movement. Sahar, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed and sharing your story with us. I was wondering if you could tell us more about what the Israeli refusal movement is and why did you join the movement? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the Israeli refusal movement is literally as old as conscription in Israel has been. So Israel has had conscription since 1948, since the creation of the state. Um, and already in 1948, there were refusers. Some of those refusers refused for pacifist reasons, others related to the communist party. And, and all of this is different forms of political refusal of people who, for different reasons, are saying that they don't want to cooperate with the violence of the state of Israel. And that has continued since 48 until today. So just as an example, right now, uh, there's a guy who just got out of prison yesterday for a few days, and he'll probably be sent back to prison for refusing military service. So we're talking about a 19-year-old kid who was exposed really just a few months before his military service to what's happening in the occupied territory, started learning about that and said, that's not something I'm willing to be a part of. Um, and so just to say, it's like a very longstanding movement with peaks of people coming together pro and creating refusal letters, kind of organized groups um, of people refusing military because of the occupation. And I was lucky enough to be part of one of those groups. So in 2008, together with a group of friends who are also activists and around the same age, we decided not just to refuse military service personally, but also to come together to make a political statement out of it and to write a refusal letter together. So in Israel, we, we call them Sheministim letters, which means like 12th graders letters or seniors letters. And the idea is really high school seniors who are expected to join the military uh, next year coming together and saying we won't because of the occupation. Um, and so we wrote a letter to the prime minister and minister of defense and minister of education and all kinds of people who probably never read it, um, declaring that we'll refuse and explaining why. And I think the why for us is very important. So each one of us has their own story of like, how did they come to the point of not wanting to serve in the military. So for myself, I was active in, in the occupied territories and protests against the occupation from more or less the age of 12 um, and you know, went to protests uh, at the age of you know, 14, 15, where soldiers were shooting tear gas and rubber bullets at us while we were in nonviolent protests. And so the, the idea of joining that force um seemed ridiculous so for me it was kind of an, an I don't want to say easy decision but it was almost obvious that I won't serve in the military but some of the people who refused together with me are people who grew up in much more either right-wing or just mainstream homes where you know all of their siblings went to combat units and they were kind of raised with this idea that they will as well and at some point had a turning point and you know every person has their own turning point 
And so we wrote this refusal letter together um, and then each of us on our draft dates um, came to the military base and told them that we will refuse and as a consequence of that uh, are imprisoned. So it's hard to say how long you'll be imprisoned for when you refuse military service, but it's usually a matter of a few months. And so that's also what happened with me. I spent about two months in prison and three months in detention um, at the age of 18 and eventually was uh, was released from, from military service. And yeah, I think that the, the main thing about this movement really uh, beyond the kind of personal choices of people is that there's something about having a draft that also gives you as an 18 year old the opportunity to to highlight why you're not serving in the military to like make a public political stand um, and that for me is like the importance of the refusal movement the, the refusal movement is not large enough in israel to be able to uh you know uh, really affect the military it's not that we're that many people that the military won't be able to occupy anymore without us um but it is an opportunity to talk to israeli society about the occupation again to say listen there's there's kids who'd rather sit in prison than be part of this and and this is why and this has been our experiences um and it's i think it's a really important platform because of that and also every time someone refuses and uses that platform we see other youth that contact us in different ways through through organizations and groups that deal with refusal and kind of want to refuse as well either publicly or not publicly but it's, it's a way to surface this issue Thank you. And then why do you think that publicly refusing to serve in the military is important? And how do you think we can encourage more people to join this movement? Well, I think I, I do want to say that it is a personal choice. And I totally understand why a lot of people would rather refuse military service without making a public statement out of it, find different backdoors out, um, and not deal with a kind of confrontation that comes with refusing politically, because when you do refuse publicly and politically, there will be backlash. Today, even more than before, today, if you think about social media and you think about, you know, 17, 18 year olds, obviously a huge amount of their lives is on social media. And we all know how cruel social media can be. So just imagine what that means when someone is, is refusing military service, when someone is doing something that is really seen as many people in Israeli society as, as treason. Um, and, and so people get a lot of very difficult feedback, also from their friends, from their family. We live in an extremely militarized society where, you know, all of our parents went to the military, our siblings, everyone, like there, there's a huge amount of um, support and faith in the military that when you choose to step out of that, it is very difficult. So it's important for me to say that, like, for me, anyone who chooses not to serve in the military, whether they make it public or not, it's still incredibly brave and important. I think the advantage of making it public is really just about an opportunity to talk about the occupation. So when I refused, I wrote a refusal letter that talked about my choice coming from my first experience in a Palestinian village uh, or my first experience of really understanding occupation. And you know, my story is about a small Palestinian village that I went to when I was 12 to plant olive trees and then continuing to going to that village for years and seeing those olive trees being uprooted for the fence being built and then the village being enclaved by the fence um, and the kids my age not being able to 
invite friends over from school because there's a fence between their friends and them. Um, and all kinds of these very like daily realities of what it means to live under occupation that I was exposed to at a young age that really brought me to the political place of where I'm at. And, and when I refused, I had the opportunity to, to talk to media about that, to have journalists listen to that story and, and print it for an Israeli audience. And, and so for me, that's really the essence of, or the importance of publicly refusing is about having a chance to, to kind of use this as a mirror to Israeli society to talk a bit about what we do. I will add to that the, the, um, a side effect, I would say, even if not the goal, but I do think it's important, is that for us as Israeli activists, I think there's a huge, like one of the things that we can do is show solidarity to Palestinians and not just speak it, not just say the word against occupation, but actually act on it. And I think that publicly refusing is often seen by Palestinian partners, activists that, that we work with as a way to do that, you know, saying, okay, we actually, like, you hear Palestinians saying, well, we actually do have partners if, like, there are people who'd rather sit in prison than occupy us. Um, that's a kind of partnership that we, are, that we want to, to develop to, to be part of. Um, so I think that that, like, solidarity aspect of it also uh, is is very important, um, especially because, you know, the, the goal here is for us to be able to, you know, see a society in which Palestinians and Israelis live together uh, peacefully. And I'm not saying that in a kind of like, let's all sit together and eat from us together and be happy kind of way, because there is an occupation going on. But it does mean that what we want to see is Israelis and Palestinians fighting that occupation together and resisting that occupation together. Um, and I do think that Israelis opting out of military service and opting out of being a active part of that occupation um, is a first step for, for a kind of joint resistance and joint life that we could build here. Thank you. I, you actually mentioned that you arrived at your activism from a very young age. I heard you say 14 or even younger. So I'm curious about how did you develop that political consciousness at a young age? What kind of influenced your thinking about your activism and the perception of the violence that is happening on the ground? I think I was mostly just very lucky in the way that I was exposed to, to the occupation. I grew up in a kind of classic Zionist anti-occupation household, which meant that I knew that we were against the occupation. I didn't quite know what it was and that that idea that we're against it had its limitations. It was very much still within the mainstream. But in the Second Intifada, um, my father started being more politically active uh, through kind of friends of his from university and so on. Um, and started going to Palestinian villages. And it really was to kind of very calm, peaceful work days of planting olive trees of things of the sort, and calm enough that he could bring his kids along. Um, and so for me, that was kind of uh, the beginning of a process. But from there, I just got to both see the reality and also know other people, meet other activists, um, and kind of slowly radicalize and, and slowly understand that, you know, the sure, when we come to, to a village to plant olive trees, that's great, but the problem is the fence that's being built there. And the problem is that for Israelis uh, back home, when I would go back to talk to them about it, that fence was all about security. And you know, there's this whole narrative that, that this fence is about security. And then you go and see reality, and you're like, this is not about security. If it was about security, 
this Palestinian village shouldn't be enclave. You just could leave it outside of the fence just as well. Um, or all these things that just don't make sense. Um, that really made me understand kind of how, how deep the structure of oppression is, how much this isn't about security. This isn't about, it, it isn't even about land. It's, it, it is a, so much about control. And the more you go into it, the more you're like, well, actually, turns out I, I live in a society that, that sees Jewish-Israeli life as more important and more valuable. And that's the thing that really needs to be challenged. That's kind of the, the root of, of a lot of the reality around. So that was for me like a break, not, not just from the mainstream and not just being anti-occupation, but also like understanding the criticism on Zionism itself and kind of moving away from the Zionist left to, to a left that, that is an actual left that says, well, our aim here is for people to live in equality regardless of their nationality, which is not something that Zionism can, can allow. How do you respond to people who, in the same the context of the United States, and of course, a lot of Hasbara efforts are trying to kind of tie anti-Zionism or any critique of Israel with anti-Semitism? How do you respond to these people? I mean, this equation is always really funny for me, because first of all, like, if you would have asked that question, a hundred years ago, it would be a completely ridiculous question. The vast majority of the Jewish population in the world was not Zionist. A huge amount of it was anti-Zionist. Um, and obviously 150 years ago, there was not a single Jewish Zionist because that wasn't a thing. Um, Zionism is such a specific movement and a European movement at that and, and like a specific ideological um, concept that's extremely new to Judaism um, and extremely foreign to a lot of traditional Judaism. And the attempt to equate Zionism with Judaism and therefore criticism of Zionism with anti-Semitism um, is just really something that that's, I mean, it, it is ridiculous, but it's extremely useful and extremely powerful because people don't want to be anti-Semitic which is great. Like, I, I'm really happy that when people, when someone is called an anti-Semite, it makes them stop and be like, no, I don't want to be that. Great. Like, that's a, that's a good start for, for anti-racist discourse. But it also means that we have to use that responsibly, meaning that we have to use it when it's actual anti-Semitism. And criticism of the actions of a state, which is what we're talking about, criticism of an nationalistic ideological movement that separates between one nationality and another, that's not anti-Semitism. That's what I expect from any anti-racist movement, the same way that I expect people to resist it in any other country in the world, um, regardless of if there are any Jews around or not. Um, and I think that is, that is very important. Um, I will say beyond that, that erasing the line between Israel and Zionism and the actions of Israel and, and Judaism and kind of putting them all in one big box is extremely dangerous because one of the things that it does is that for the actual anti-Semites out there and they definitely do exist, it makes their life much easier um, because they now have a legitimate reason to, to be anti-Semitic. If, if we're gonna put all of those things in one box, 
Zionism and occupation in Israel and say that represents Jews, Israel represents Jews, then the anti-Semitism becomes more legitimate because if Israel does something wrong, then, then it's okay to be an anti-Semite. That's like dangerous also for, for Jews. It's not just like it's not just a bad equation because it's it's wrong, it's not based on justice, and it makes it easy to to attack activists that are really just trying to promote justice, but it's also wrong because it promotes anti-Semitism, it feeds into anti-Semitic discourse. So really we have to be able to make this separation. I think that's a great point. So I'm really curious, we talked about the refusal movement, we talked about kind of your definition of Zionism and anti-Semitism, the links between them or lack of connection. Um, And I'm curious about how all of this falls under peace activism. How do you define peace activism? And how do you think it guides your work? Well, I haven't used uh, peace in in my title in any way. (laughs) I'm like a peace activist or anything of the sort. And and I think that is, it's a sad thing. Mm-hmm. that I think that most of us here don't use that term because peace has been misused here. The term peace has been extremely misused here to the point that today it just feels toxic. It feels like the opposite of, of justice, mm-hmm. um, which is sad because I don't think we should, we should probably reclaim it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s and like as a kid, the, the Oslo Accords were happening and that was, you know, what we knew about peace and people were talking about peace in those terms. And, and then, you know, now 25 years later, we can say that wasn't peace. That was a strengthening and, and building more infrastructure of occupation that you called peace. That like, you know, that, that there's, there's a reason why you don't hear activists using the term peace here much anymore because it's just been torn of all meaning. Uh, it's become like more around, you know, peace in the pacifying way. And things are quiet, then, then that's peace. And I think that for all of us activists, uh, it's like, no, peace like demands justice, requires justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, yeah, justice and equality are frameworks that we use much more today, mm-hmm. but they are ultimately what peace means and what is needed for actual real peace. So maybe, yeah, it's uh, time for us to reclaim that a bit. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, you know, kind of uh, distinguishing, you know, saying talking about what the word peace mean and how it has been instrumentalized and it was been used in terms of pacifying one side, right? And justice maybe describes it better, but peace requires justice, right? Um, And I think reclaiming it uh, would be great. (laughs) I have a a question too about your work. You know, we talked, we didn't really address your work with American Friends Service Committee and the work they do in Jerusalem. Can you tell us more about their work and why did you decide to join them? How, um, or does the organization align with your views and why does it align with your views, understanding of activism? So I joined American Friends Service Committee in 2000, late 2011, mostly because they, they were just starting a new program. They were just starting their Israel program after years they didn't have one and wanted to focus it on countering militarization. 
Um, and I think that that's one of the unique things about an organization like AFSC as opposed to other international organizations in the area that kind of work in the framework of international law or human rights. American Friends Service Committee as a Quake organization works in the framework of peace, right? Um, and peace can include much more than human rights or international law and, and can address things like militarism that usually big international organizations will not touch uh, because they all come from countries that are highly militarized. Um, and, and for me, that was like, that was why I wanted to work on this issue because I think that militarization of Israeli society really is the root of, or one of the roots of the way our society looks like. The fact that we can't criticize the military means we can't criticize its actions and its actions are holding millions of civilians um, under military law. But, but if the military itself is sacred as it is in, in Israeli society, then, then you, you can't criticize what it does. And it's not just a, a theoretical sacred, it's also because your brother and mother and children and who, like everyone around you served in the military, meaning if you criticize what the military does and say it's immoral, you are saying that they are immoral, which obviously as a society we can't, can't do, right? It's a psychological um, mechanism that protects the occupation de facto. Um, but other than that, like the, the whole ideology around militarization, which is an ideology that says that the way that we can survive as a Jewish people with all the history of persecution and everything is based on what we call in Hebrew, living on our sword. It's based on, on combat. And, and to an extent, that's the, the solution that Zionism proposed to antisemitism. It proposed the solution of a nation state with its own military, it's a militarized solution to anti-Semitism by definition. And I think militarized solutions just lock you in such a closed box that you know we don't believe in peace. We're not working towards peace. Maybe we want peace in the sense of a peace accord because it gives you security, but the aim is always from this place of, of a militarized mindset and solution and way to think about the world and threats. And that is something that I really like it's important for me to challenge, not just because I think it's part of what allows the occupation to continue, but also because it's a terrible thing for a society to live in, um, you know, for myself as an Israeli. So, so that's kind of why I went to work with American Friends Service Committee. And with the years, our work worked, like we both work on countering youth militarization and working with different refusal groups and, and part of the refusal movement. But also we've expanded that to looking at the Israeli military industry, um, just because it's such a huge part of Israel's economy is a highly militarized uh, economy because of this military industry that's the eighth biggest weapons exporter in the world and really exports to, to around 130 countries around the world. And that also has an effect as, on us as a society, socially, economically, politically. And so that's also been a lot of the work uh, in the last few years, both doing research and campaigning around Israel's military industry and its relationship to occupation, and also about the kind of receiving countries and what do these arms do um, and their involvement in human rights wherever they land. And then, so we talked about kind of militarization and, and militarization of society. How do you see, like, for somebody who doesn't understand what militarization means, 
Um, how would you describe that? How do you think it's affecting Israeli society in general? And what kind of institutions try to implement that beyond the military? There are about a million ways that militarization manifests in Israeli society, um, but really like starting from kindergarten where we make care packages for soldiers in holidays to school books that use, I was reading this math school book for second grade that had like a question that said, in a pack of chocolate, there are 40 pieces of chocolate in four lines, how many rows are there? And then the next question is, in a military unit, there are 27 soldiers standing in seven lines, how many rows are there? Like it's really on the same level, you know? Um, and so you have all these kind of daily, just manifestations of normalizing the military. Um, and it's also in public space. Like I was living in a city up north uh, near the Golan and there's like in the entrance of the city there are three tanks and they're pink, yellow and blue and kids climb on them and play. And it's just like very normal, the idea of military of weapons, not even talking about the amount of weapons in public space. Uh, of, of security guards, of soldiers, of everything. So part of it is just really that that normalization. But I think a huge other part is really the creation of the ideology that says that the way to solve things is through military might. And that's that's even, I mean, the our holidays are probably the best example of that, the, the Hebrew calendar. We have a month between April and May in the Hebrew calendar that starts with Passover. Mm-hmm. So we celebrate the exodus from Egypt, and the, the liberation from salvation from slavery, right? Like it's it's about liberation from persecution. But the one of the songs that we sing in the holiday it translates into when every generation someone tries to exterminate us and then God saves us from them. Um, and it's like a lot of the holidays about remembering that and passing from generation to generation, this precautionary tale. And then a week after. Passover ends is the Holocaust Memorial Day. And a week after that is the Soldiers and Victims of Terror Memorial Day. And the following morning is Independence Day. And putting that all in a line is like exactly that story of like anti-Semitism, persecution, always obviously the Holocaust being the worst example of that. And then the, the solution that we give to that is the soldiers, right? And, and they keep dying. Like it, it is, it's an ongoing thing. It hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. But the solution is the soldiers who are dying for the state to exist. Like that's kind of put as a solution with literal fireworks at the end of this month, right? Um, and and so like that's also a huge part of of the creation of that narrative that the military, the soldiers, that is the solution that we have. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to ask you a question about. Um, like intellectual influences. So of course you just provided an amazing definition of militarism, how it manifests in Israeli society. And I was wondering how intellect, like who are the intellectual influences in your life that helped you see all of that and understand all of that in such a high level. It's not only, you know, I witnessed something, but it's mainly you, you understand the concepts at, at, their, at their core um, and what they mean. I mean, to be honest, like I've, I've read different like different articles and, and theory and, and stuff like that. But to be honest, I think most of it is talking to people on the ground. It's not from the kind of theory and academic whatever influences. It's from like talking to people and understanding what their experience is. Like how how do you, like being here for that month mm-hmm. of the memorial and just feeling how heavy everything is 
and talking to people around me who are critical, who are thinking about these things and saying, wow, this, this heaviness, this sadness of, of the Haggas Memorial, the Soldiers Memorial, of the idea, like we feel that even when we're critical, we, we live in it. And it makes us think about survival and it makes us think about the need to survive. And wow, like how much is this constructed? So it's, it's like, for me, I think I am a person who learns much more from the ground up than from theory. Yeah, I mean, that's what grounded theory is. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept where you kind of let the community that you're working with uh, or the interaction with the community shape the theory that you come up with. This is fascinating. I want to ask you, what's the proudest or what's kind of the uh, most impactful project or piece of activism that you're proud of? Oh, wow, I have no idea. Um... <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been part of a lot of different projects that I think, but I feel like every one of them has its own place. Probably the most recent one, and I'll just go for that because it's more recent. I'm not gonna, yeah, rate, <laughs> rate them. Um, but um, I've just finished a, a few months of living in the South Hebron Hills in the accompaniment project um, that included learning Arabic, kind of an intensive course, but also, uh, just doing accompaniment work on a daily basis in different Palestinian villages. And it's anything from documenting house demolitions, for that matter, just today there were six uh, demolitions in that area alone, to settler attacks, uh, documenting, calling the police, trying to prevent them in different ways. So again, just as an example, last Thursday, I was uh, in that area again, and there was an attack that included both stone throwing and uh, pepper spray against Palestinian shepherd. And we were there and able to both document it and, and talk to the police later and take the shepherd to file a complaint later. And for a change, settlers were even arrested, which is unprecedented uh, in the last few months that I've been active there. Um, but like really like that kind of activism that's on the ground, that's answering needs of, of our Palestinian partners that say like this would be helpful if we have more people coming to document or this would be helpful if you know at these and these hours you could be here for that like that um was a very meaningful project for me and also I'm hoping it'll continue so that's uh it's always nice to to see projects continue after you leave them and can you tell us more about what's happening there for people who don't know what's going on like how are they justifying the house demolitions why are they happening why do the settlers feel okay attacking Palestinians? Um, sure. So the South Hebron Hills is an area in the south of the West Bank, which is in what we call Area C. So the West Bank is separated to Area A, B, C, A being theoretically fully under the control of the Palestinian Authority, so both administrative issues but also policing and things of the sort. And that's just the big city. It's only 17% of the West Bank. Um, then you have Area B, which is supposed to have administrative control of the Palestinian Authority and security, quote unquote, controlled by uh, the Israeli. So Area C is the vast majority of the West Bank is over 60%, uh, and that is under complete Israeli control, both administrative and security, which means that if a Palestinian wants to build a house on his own private land, they would need authorization from or permit from the Israeli military civil administration. So the part of the military that's responsible for civilian matters, that is not given. Uh, over 99% of 
the uh, requests for permits from Palestinians in Area C are denied. Um, and in effect, what that means is that Palestinians have no choice but to build illegally. Um, again, on their own private lands in occupied territories, something that by international law, um, there is no question that they have a right to do and no question that the Israeli military has no right to demolish. And yet that is the reality that we see. And so people build illegally and then it's theoretically a very administrative process, right? Like if you build something illegally, obviously the authorities are gonna demolish it. And they come uh, with bulldozers on days like today and demolish it. Um, I think it's important to say, we're not just talking about houses. Uh, and in these areas, we're talking about very rural communities. Many times the houses are a cave with a like larger tent or kind of shed thing next to it. We're not talking about you know three-story uh, buildings and uh, water and electricity infrastructure. But these demolitions also include demolitions of infrastructure. So today they demolished a water cistern in an area that doesn't have a connection to water um, because every time they try to put a pipe in, that gets demolished as well. And the roads that lead to that village were also demolished twice over the last two months. And so how do you live, right? Like if, if not only do they demolish your house once in a while, but if you can't bring in water through a pipe and you can't drive water in because the roads get demolished and then the water cisterns that are the little water that does exist in an area that's already pretty much a desert and going through the dissertation process that we're all going through because of global warming and then you demolish that cistern like that is really I mean it, it is making life impossible so that that's like part of of demolitions and it's very clear that the goal is for Palestinians to leave those communities uh, because while area C is over 60 percent of the West Bank um, it has a very small Palestinian population it's mostly agricultural lands rural communities it's not cities um, so it's not that many people on a lot of land. So for the Israeli authorities, if, if they manage to kick out these people, and we're talking about the estimates are, are, are between two and 300,000 people in this entire area, if they manage to kick them out, if they manage to make them leave just because life becomes so impossible, then Israel can really take over that land much more easier and talking about annexation of that land uh, and things of the sort. And so the army does its part with, with demolitions and things of the sort. The settlers, so kind of very ideological right-wing settlers who, who live in uh, different outposts and, and settlements in the area um, are kind of doing their part, quote unquote, in, in making the lives of Palestinians there just as hard as possible for them to leave, which means um, because it's an area that's mostly dependent on, on shepherding, then it means not allowing Palestinians to get to their, um, again, to, to their water, uh, to the cisterns um, with their sheep or throwing stones at their sheep so that the sheep run away from their grazing lands or taking over grazing lands. Grazing settlers have started to um, use herds, like they now have their own herds in and grazing areas that otherwise Palestinians would graze, uh, making the Palestinians shepherds just not have enough food for the sheep or things of the sort. So it's really like a huge variety of methods of making people's lives as miserable as possible so that they leave. Wow. You know, I know about these things, but the more I hear about them, like, and every time I hear about the stories, I'm just shocked again. 
by how people can justify their actions, you know, in so many names, right? I have a question, you know, the work that you do is very important and essential. Um, and I think you being an ally to these shepherds kind of, I'm sure gives them opportunities. As you said, it's not really because the state still doesn't really respond to, uh, or it's not like, it's not like the legal and the security system is going to respond the same way for settlers and Palestinians uh, when it comes to these situations. But I wanted to ask you about what do you think are the most important things an ally can do or uh, can um, practice when they're uh, trying to advocate for Palestinians? Jewish allies, let's focus on Jewish allies specifically. Well, I think it really is a lot about like building relationships with Palestinian activists and then taking their lead, like listening to them. What do they think is, is the most important? Uh, I will say on a practical note that learning Arabic is extremely important on that because it also allows for that conversation to actually happen in Arabic more comfortably in, in a space uh, where the Palestinians are the ones who have more comfort in, in the conversation, just from, from a language perspective. So many of our conversations happen um, either in English or more often in Hebrew, because a lot of Palestinians speak Hebrew, mostly from being in Israeli prisons or working in Israel or other forms of that are really a necessity. Um, but it means that, that like even the conversations in which we're talking about what solidarity looks like and how can we support Palestinians are happening in our comfort zone, you know, <laughs> instead of, of obviously like it is easier to communicate in your mother tongue. And so even just that kind of technical aspect of it, but yeah, I think it's a lot about that. And, and then different areas, solidarity will look very differently. Like there are areas that what they would actually want is for you to stay home and, and, and just like share on social media, their act, like their activism that they don't want Israelis to be part of actually. And in other places it'll be, yes, we want your presence here because it will decrease settler violence or in other places it'll be, we want your, your presence here because when myself as a white Israeli Jew says something about what's happening in the occupation, people listen more to me um, because I'm somehow more, I don't know, objective than a Palestinian living under it, which is obviously racist and stupid, but also true. That, that is like the world we live in, that people listen to that more. So sometimes that'll be the ask. So it's really about kind of finding the partners, putting energy into building those relationships and then taking the lead from them. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to ask you about what challenges are you facing due to your activism and your work? And what kind of advice do you have for new activists, new allies who are just kind of arriving to their political consciousness or starting to think about how to be involved, but they're afraid of the consequences of rejection of society? Or let's say, what kind of advice would you have given your younger self, even though you grew up in a different context than a lot of other activists, about how to handle the challenges of activism in general? I think there are a lot of, you know, technical challenges, anything from, or not technical, but like, yeah, you go out to a shepherd with Palestinian shepherds that 
get stones thrown at them by settlers, obviously you might get stoned as well. Um, or things of the sort, like that's obviously a part of the price or, or getting arrested and indictments and, and criminal records and all kinds of things of the sort. But I think really the hardest thing for me at least, and I think for, for many others, is that you, the moment you are aware, you start being active and, and seeing these things, it's just very hard to live with the gap between that and your quote unquote normal life, right? Like I'm sitting here now in an apartment in Jerusalem that's connected to electricity and connected to water and does not have a demolition order on it. And, and you know, my car is parked in the driveway and I will be able to drive it on well-paved roads when I get out of here and nobody's gonna arrest me no matter where I drive. And like, I live with a huge amount of privilege. And, and the gap between that and knowing that there were six demolitions in South Auburn Hills today, who, you know, people who literally don't have water tonight because of that, is hard to live with. And it's not exactly a challenge you can say like, this is how you deal with this challenge. It, it just is the reality. I think for me, the main thing is about really understanding that, and, and this might've been, I don't know, the, the advice I would give a younger me or the advice I would give myself today, because I still am not there. Um, but I think a lot of it is understanding how do you say, okay, this privilege that I live in, it gives me a responsibility. It gives me a responsibility to continue to fight the occupation, to do whatever I can to try to change the system of oppression but I don't have to do it from a place of guilt and, and that that's not helpful in a way. Um, and I think that that's maybe a piece of advice that I definitely struggle with. And I think a lot of activists do, and that's true for like activists and, and dealing with white privilege also in other contexts is that question of how do you not make it about yourself and your guilt when you are aware of these things, but make it about the responsibility that comes with it and the actions that should come with that responsibility. Thank you very much. I wanna thank you again for sharing your story uh, and your insights with us. Um, I hope our listeners learned something or two, I'm sure they did, <laughs> uh, about what's happening. And I wanna thank our listeners for tuning in. Bye.